You're listening to the Tree of Life podcast, where we desire to be a bridge between the two covenantal peoples, physical Israel and spiritual Israel, by inspiring the non-Jewish part of Messiah's body to reconnect with its Jewish roots through biblical teaching and worshipful demonstrations, and to work towards greater understanding and reconciliation between Messiah's body and traditional Judaism. And now, here's Rabbi Joel Lieberman. Available to you, and so we want to speak for a little bit this morning about the days of the first of the harvest and unleavened bread. How many of you have been enjoying the feast of unleavened bread? I can tell you one thing right now: what my and I are going to be breaking our fast of leavening tonight. Actually, many will go to tomorrow night in the diaspora, but the word of God is clear; it really ends tonight. And so we will find a great pizza joint tonight, or something like that. But This matzah pizza is getting old, although it was great last night, but it was good. So as we move forward on the biblical calendar, over the years, some have inquired, why haven't we conducted a commemorative commemoration service of Yeshua's resurrection three days following Passover? And so that discussion is not so easy. From a Messianic Jewish perspective, is much different than typically discussed this weekend in the Christian community. So let's begin that discussion. Open with me in your Bibles to Leviticus Vaikra chapter 23. And we wanna pick up where we're at in the biblical calendar. Verse nine, we begin. And you can probably, you can, yeah, you've done a lot today. It's okay, I'll call you back up too. I love it. Begin in verse nine this morning. Adonai spoke to Moses saying, speak to Bnei Yisrael, the children of Israel and tell them, When you've come into the land which I give to you and reap its harvest, then you are to bring the omer of the first fruits of your harvest to the Kohen, to the priest. Verse 11, he is to wave the omer before Adonai to be accepted for you on the morrow, on the day after the Shabbat, the Kohen is to wave it. And if you can silence those cell phones, that would be much appreciated. Verse 15, then you are to count from the morrow, from the day after the Shabbat, from the day that you brought the Omer of the wave offering, seven complete Shabbatot. Until the morrow, after the seventh Shabbat, you are to count 50 days and then present a new grain offering to Adonai. And so since it comes on the heels of Passover, During the seven days of unleavened bread, this day mentioned in verses 9, 10, and 11 is a, in a sense, it's a miniature appointed time within a larger appointed time of unleavened bread. And it's often overlooked in the Jewish community. And most certainly it is totally overlooked in the Christian community. But on this day, biblically, Israel was to bring an Omer Reshit Ketzirchem, a sheaf a bundle of grain stalks of the first of the harvest to the priest, to the Kohen. This was the first of the harvest of the springtime. As acknowledgement of Adonai's provision for harvest and for rain, the Israelites were to participate in this ceremony of the first grain of the barley harvest in the presence of God. The Rishit Kitzirchem, the first of the harvest, was to be unleavened, standing barley freshly cut down by a sickle. And so this harvest would continue then for seven full weeks as the other crops and the fruits began to ripen. And as each fruit would begin to ripen, the first of each type would not be eaten, but 
Instead, the farmer would tie a ribbon around the branch of the fruit tree. This ribbon signified that these fruits were bikurim. These were first fruits. A wave offering was then presented with these barley sheaves. And only after that were they at liberty to make use of the harvest for themselves. You see, the lesson was very clear, my friends. If Adonai has been faithful to bless us with the early harvest, he will most certainly provide the harvest of late summer. See, God has blessed us with the early harvest of Jewish believers. He will surely provide the latter harvest scheduled to occur in our day. Do you believe that? Each year, our purpose in counting the Omer, the ripening of the first fruits, is to draw closer to Adonai and to be obedient to his word. See, the days of the Omer count provide an awesome, a natural and awesome and timely opportunity for us to think about our journey and to set us in the habit of counting our days, considering our path, making the goals, making goals about our destination. We should expect every day that the faith level in our lives will be raised in anticipation of what God will do in our lives and in the lives of those around us. Every year I take opportunity during these 50 days to journey myself. This year I'm journeying with my colleague who leads a Messianic congregation in the Crestline area, Shiloh Messianic congregation in Crestline and Calamesa in his devotional, 50-day devotional, preparing for the Father's gift. It really, it's an unpacking of Psalm 119 and other psalms. It's been an incredible journey, and I'm looking forward to day six on this tonight. So counting this Omer is a spiritual exercise, and it's a discipline. And according to Jewish tradition, it is, the counting is done in a prescribed manner. After the evening prayers, this blessing is recited. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam. Asher kichanu b'mitzvotav etzivanu al svirat ha-Omer. Blessed are you, Lord our God, ruler of the universe, who has set us apart with his commandments and commanded us to count the Omer. Now, typically, this formal counting every night is followed by the recitation of Psalm chapter 67. You can turn over there and a few short uh, petitions as well for spiritual cleansing and renewal. It's recited because this psalm is recited because it is composed of exactly 49 Hebrew words which correspond to the 49 days of the Omer count. It's a psalm that is seasonally appropriate because of its harvest theme and motif. It is spiritually appropriate as well because it clearly speaks of God's salvation, prophetically looking forward to Yeshua being made known all over the earth. Psalm 67, uh, for the music director with stringed instruments, a psalm, a song, may God be gracious to us and bless us. May he cause his face to shine upon us, Selah, so that your way may be known on earth and your salvation among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you will judge the peoples fairly. And guide the nations on the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its harvest. God, our God will bless us. God will bless us. And all the ends of the earth will fear him. Now we see in hindsight that the tra traditional observance of this miniature feast within a larger feast with the unleavened barley sheaves being waved before Adonai and the grain that had come from the earth being lifted up for all to see, I believe was a foreshadowing of the resurrection of Mashiach, of Messiah. Why? Well, 
because Yeshua alluded to himself in these similar terms, his resurrection in these terms. We find that in Yochanan chapter 12, and we're going to go through a number of scriptures today, beginning in verse 23. Yeshua answered them, saying, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Amen, amen, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. Verse 32. And as I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all to myself. And by divine design, then, the rituals of offering this barley omer in the temple on this day coincided with the death and resurrection of Yeshua. You see, it was on this same day that Caiaphas and his associates tried Yeshua. Three members of the Sanhedrin on that same day went out to a barley field not far from the temple. And on the same day the Romans bound and crucified Yeshua, the members, these three members of the Sanhedrin bound up the standing barley into bundles while it was still attached, by the way, to the ground so that it would be easier to reap on that particular Saturday night that year when they would return back to the barley field to barley. For you see, the Torah prohibited using or eating any produce of the New Year cereal crops until the priesthood would offer up to the Lord the first of this new grain. You won't hear this in a lot of churches this weekend, but what's going on here? That same night, the priests in the temple would roast and thresh and grind the barley into flour. All night they prepared it. That same night, Saturday night, Yeshua left the tomb. Sunday morning, while the women discovered the empty tomb, the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, was busy mixing the barley flour with oil and frankincense to prepare it as a, as a bread offering. The priest mixed the flour into dough with olive oil and incense, and Caiaphas took the batch of unleavened dough in his hands and waved it before the Lord as an offering. Well, after that morning sacrifice and the additional Passover sacrifices that Torah prescribes, Caiaphas' high priest offered a portion of grain offering on the altar as a memorial portion. The priest baked the remainder of the dough into loaves of unleavened barley bread to be shared among the priests. And Caiaphas would then conclude that ceremony by sacrificing a male, single male lamb as a burnt offering to accompany the new grain. And that day began the 50-day count toward the festival of Shavuot. And so during this first of the harvest miniature festival within a larger festival, Dr. Luke records the events that were taking place during this time. Let's read about those events in Luke chapter 24. We begin reading in verse 1 this morning that on the first day of the week at daybreak, the women came to the tomb carrying the spices that they had prepared. And they found the stone had been rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Yeshua. And while they were perplexed about this, you see, the women were perplexed because in spite of hearing that Yeshua foretold on several occasions that he would rise from the dead on the third day, they could not imagine three days after he died why the tomb was empty. Suddenly, two men in dazzling clothes stood beside them. The women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you search for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Remember what he told you when he was still in the Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be executed and on the third day rise up. And they were reminded of his word. Notice that they had to be reminded that Yeshua had told them several times that he was going to suffer, that he would die. They had never truly understood or believed what he had told. 
And when they returned from the tomb, verse 9, they told all these things to the eleven and to everyone else. Now, it was Miriam from Magdala, Johanna, the Miriam of Yaakov, and others together with them who were telling these things to the emissary. But these words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them. Note that Yeshua, when he sent his disciples out for a short time, we learned earlier in the Gospel of Luke, he sent them out with power to heal and power to raise the dead. One would think after those experiences with God's miracle working power, that would have created enough something within them, sufficient faith within them to believe those who now said that they had seen the Lord, but it did not. Look at verse, but Peter got up and ran to the tomb. And leaning in, he sees only the linen cloth. And he went away to his home, marveling at what had happened. Now behold, two of them on that very day were traveling to a village named Emmaus, a distance of about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were speaking with one another about all the things that had been happening. And while they were talking and discussing, Yeshua himself appeared, approached and began traveling with them, but their eyes were kept from recognition. And then he said to them, what are these things you are discussing with one another as you are walking along? And they stood still looking gloomy. And then one named Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that happened here in these days? Yeshua said to them, what kind of thing? And they said to him, the things about Yeshua from Nazareth, who was a prophet, powerful in deed and word before God and all the people. One would think that these two disciples would at least have waited until the next day to leave town, just in case Yeshua did rise from the dead on day three. They had absolutely no expectation of it, so they left. And it says they were gloomy, right? These two disciples were sad. Why? They had not seen the resurrected Yeshua, but because they were thinking that their faith in Yeshua is the Messiah, they thought their faith was in vain. Now, notice here that Cleopas is no longer referring, here's where their faith level is at, he's no longer referring to Yeshua as the Messiah, but as only a great prophet. Let's go on, verse 20. How the ruling Kohanim and our leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they executed him. But we were hoping that he was the one about to redeem Israel. Besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us amazed us. Early in the morning, they were at the tomb. And when they didn't find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he is alive. Some of those with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women said, but they did not see him. And Yeshua said to them, Oh, foolish ones, so slow of heart to put your trust in all the prophets spoke. Was it not necessary for Messiah to suffer these things and to enter into glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things written about himself in all the... They approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though he were going further on. But they urged him, saying, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. And the day is already gone. So he went in to stay with them. And it happened that when he was reclining at the table, well, we see here that, well, let's go on. He took the matzah and he offered a bracha, blessing, and breaking it and gave it to them. And then their eyes were opened and they recognized that he disappeared from them. And they said to one another, didn't our heart? 
burn within us while he was speaking with us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us. And they got up that very hour and returned back to Jerusalem. They found the 11 and others with them gathered together saying, the Lord is risen indeed. He has appeared to Simon. Then they began telling about the events on the road to Emmaus and how he became recognized by them in the breaking of the matzah. Now, in addition to the scriptures here, there is a fragment. It's extra biblical. So, you know, do with that as you will. But there's a fragment that Yeshua appeared to Jacob, James, Yaakov separately. And the fragment says this. Now, James had sworn that he would not eat bread from the time that he drank the cup of the master until he would see him risen from among those who sleep. The master said, bring a table and bread. He took the bread made a blessing, broke it, and gave it to James the righteous. He said to him, my brother, eat your bread, for the Son of Man is risen from among those who sleep. It's an extra biblical fragment. I find it interesting. Now, as we fast forward historically from this day, Rabbi Saul or Paul taught the believers at Corinth about the Messiah's resurrection. He makes an amazing connection, I believe, to this biblical day we're talking about here of Reshit Ketzirchem, this first of the harvest, when he told the Corinthian congregation this, 1 Corinthians 15 in verse 20. But now he says, Messiah has been raised from the dead, the Bikurim, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also has come through a man. For as in Adam all die, so also in Messiah all will be made alive. But each in its own order, Messiah, the Bikurin, the first fruits, then it is coming, those who belong to Messiah. Paul was studied under Gamaliel, right? He was a Pharisee, he was thoroughly familiar with these temple service. So when he said first fruits here, you can be sure he's alluding to this festival ordained at this time by Torah. A study of this letter will tell you as well. He wrote this letter between Passover and Shavuot. Now, what was Paul trying to get across here to these people? Well, I believe he is saying here that it was not merely that Yeshua was uh, the first to rise bodily from the grave, right? But that in so doing, he is the direct fulfillment of this feast, of this feast of early first fruits resurrected on this appointed time on God's calendar. Others had been raised from the dead. We know this, but they died again, right? The widow and Jairus's, and Elijah's day, rather, Lazarus, Jairus's daughter. But Yeshua, he says, is uniquely Bikurim, first fruits, in that he died, that he rose and is alive forevermore in anticipation of us or the believers who have fallen asleep, or we who are alive, but who will be raised together with him forever at his second coming. Yeshua is the Bikurim. He is the first fruits. He's the first fruit. What does that mean? He's the seal. He's the guarantee. He's the assurance of our resurrection. And so, my friends, Yeshua's resurrection makes this counting of the Omer a season of special significance in our lives and a time of special joy. For us as his Talmudim, as his disciples, it is a time, as we're doing now, to remember his resurrection. All of his appearances post-resurrection took place during these days of the Omer count, at least the first 40 days. And on the 40th, Yeshua led his disciples out to that hill at the Mount of Olives, and they saw him whoop, ascend into heaven. But before he did that, what did he do? He commanded them, don't leave Jerusalem. Why? Wait there for the promise of Ha'av, the father, Ruch HaKodesh, in power. Now, stay tuned for the fulfillment of that on the biblical calendar, which falls this year, 
May 16th and May 17th. Now, for us as Messianic, for Christians as well, along with the memorial of the plague of the firstborn and the exodus from Egypt, which we commemorated last Saturday night. And I want to thank all of you who were involved in that. That was quite an act of service and a blessing. But the Passover Seder, as we moved forward last Saturday night with, also remembers, and we looked at a little bit, Yeshua's last Seder with his disciples, right? We did the Seder in remembrance of him as he instructed, and we rehearsed a few of his words. But here are some more of his words we didn't get to Saturday night, Luke chapter 22. And I love these words. When the hour came, Yeshua reclined at table and the emissaries with him. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will never eat it again until it is in the kingdom of God. You see, my friends, someday in the future, we're going to be reclining at a Seder meal with the resurrected Yeshua. And so today we have a partial understanding of Passover due to the exodus from Egypt. And that partial level of understanding that we went through Saturday night got greatly increased due to the rescue on our behalf by Yeshua HaMashiach. But then Yeshua says something incredible here. He says, in God's kingdom, the full revelation of Passover will be revealed to us. His it will then be given its full meaning. You guys, we got a few minutes before, before that, so you can relax. Yeshua spoke of this great feast that is going to take place in the Messianic era. He alludes to it when he talks about those who are going to be reclining with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. The Messianic banquet is also referred to biblically as the wedding feast of the Lamb. Now, personally, I believe, it's my opinion, that part of that full revelation that he's talking about has started to break through to us early prior to its fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And here's just one small example of why I believe that. It's rightfully controversial, and I briefly touched on it a couple of weeks ago, but I want to unpack it a little more right now. Part of that full revelation coming in even before the kingdom of God has come. Have you ever really thought for a moment why the Messiah Yeshua was crucified at a place called Golgotha? How did the site of the crucifixion get that name? Well, we know that Yeshua the Messiah was of the lineage of David, right? We know that from the genealogies in Matthew 1 and Luke chapter 3. But you remember what happened when David defeated Goliath. He cut off his head, right? But what did he do with Goliath's head? He brings it to Jerusalem, 1 Samuel 17:54 tells us. He buries his head, according to tradition, outside of the ancient city of Jerusalem. Our Jewish people would never have allowed Goliath's head to be buried within the city. Goliath's full name was Goliath of Gath. Golgotha is a variant of that. Golgotha, Aramaic, means skull, became known as the place of the burial of Goliath's skull. And when David did that, we can speculate that Adonai was beginning at that point to fulfill prophecy that he spoke to the servant, serpent at the very beginning, the first prophecy in the Bible, when he said that he would put enmity between your seed, seed the serpent, Satan's seed, and her seed, Eve's seed, the Messiah, Genesis 3.15, the first prophecy. And in terms of beginning to fulfill that prophecy, we know biblically there was a race of supernatural beings, possibly who are descendants of fallen angels, that God bound from having relations with women, the Nephilim, the giants, maybe having to do with the size of these 
guys, or their ferocity that we find in Genesis chapter 6 and in the New Covenant in Yehuda, Jude chapter 1. The Anakites, another name that is sometimes translated as giants, of which the Philistine Goliath supposedly was a descendant of, were pit against David. What am I saying? We could say that the Genesis 3.15 first prophecy is talking about a demonic seed, the Anakim as it were, and a spiritual seed, the offspring of David. Now Yeshua's father was the same father as Adam's. He's actually referred to as the second Adam. My friends, we know God in his wisdom, he overlooks his word. He overshadows every line of his word to perform it. Every jot, every tittle, every yud, every makef, David brings the skull of the seed of Satan, the Anakim Goliath, to the place Golgotha buries it. And it's quite possible, my friends, that it was at the very heel of Yeshua. Serpent shall bruise Messiah's heel right where the execution stake was placed. This could not have happened at the place of the crucifixion, which is clearly inside the city walls, this church of the Holy Sepulchre location. Today is venerated by millions of Christians around the world as Golgotha. This is due in large part to other scholars who assert that that Church of the Holy Sepulchre location could have been outside the walls, but that's recently been refuted by archaeological evidence that positions the present, if you've been there, the the present Damascus Gate to be the northernest border boundary of Jerusalem in the 30s of the Common Era, thus making the Church of the Holy Sepulchre location inside those city walls. There are some scriptures, I believe, from the Tanakh that imitate, that intimate rather, that the outside the walls Golgotha site, how many of you have been there, the adjacent to the garden tomb site, is the correct location? For the crucifixion. There were some theologians, notably the Scottish theologians, Andrew Bernard and Otto Thenius, that began to put these things together 35 years even before General Gordon did, who was an incredible Bible student in the 1880s, early 1880s. That General Gordon became convinced in 1882 that the outside, the walls, Golgotha site, adjacent to the garden tomb, was the likely place for the execution of Yeshua. One of those passages that convinced him was this, Leviticus chapter 1, in verse 10, it says, if his sacrifice is from the flock, these are the offerings in the temple, from the sheep or from the goats, not of the herd, which is the first number of verses, but if the sacrifice is from the sheep or from the goats for a burnt offering, he shall make a, lamb, a male, bring a male without blemish. He is to slaughter it on the north side of the altar. The north side of the altar before the Lord. The place of a skull, Golgotha, at the Gordon Calvary's location, is north side of the city. Directly north of that Damascus gate, which is the boundary, archaeology tells us. The traditional side of the Holy Sepulchre is not. Leviticus 4, verse 12 speaks about the sin offering had to be taken outside the camp. Now... Back to this messianic banquet that Yeshua is talking about. The fulfillment of the Passover Seder that Yeshua would be participating in with his heavenly father and us. Yeshua said this. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who presented a wedding feast for his son. Yeshua is the bridegroom, my friend. who comes to the feast and takes those who are ready in with him to the wedding feast. In fact, this concept of a wedding banquet or a messianic banquet, that is extremely 
Jewish. It is our people understand that this is going to happen based on Isaiah 25, 6, which says this, on this mountain, Adonai Tzvaot will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, of rich food, of choice marrow, of aged wine, well refined. Now, This is fascinating, my friends, because ancient Jewish legend has speculated about the details of this messianic banquet for thousands of years. Our sages imagined that in the future, Adonai is going to prepare a feast for the righteous in the Garden of Eden, and he will recline with them at the table. They go on to say that the main course at this banquet was going to be the meat of the beast's Leviathan, a giant sea monster, Job 41.1, and behemoth from Job 40, verse 15, a giant ox. That's an interesting meat combination for the Seder, along with wine that has been preserved in its grapes since the six days of creation. I don't, I'm not a wine connoisseur. I don't drink wine, but I know it, the years, it, it's a big deal. Uh, how would you like that? Uh, year zero, right? The grapes, six days of creation, wine. They speak of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob being present at the table along with all the righteous resurrected. And at the banquet, God is going to crown King Messiah. The Talmud says at the end of the meal, no one will be found worthy to say grace after meals except for the Messiah who will take four cups in his hands and say the blessing. And all this is from the rabbinic documents. Pesachim 119b, Numbers Rabbah 13.2, Numbers Rabbah 13.2, etc. For the past several years, based on all that, it's been reported in Jerusalem, and it's going down right now, that Hasidic rabbis have taken part in what they call, right now it's happening, this Siudat Mashiach, the Messiah's Supper, at the end of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Rabbi Amichai Evan Yisrael has stated, quote, the main goal of the Messiah's Supper is to try and internalize the issue of the coming of the Messiah as real, not just a myth, not just as a fairy tale. This is why we eat, he says, and drink while discussing this issue, to symbolize that it is real and could be digested. This Siudat Moshiach was instituted back in the 17th century in the Hasidic movement by its founder, Rabbi Israel ben Eliezer, who taught that eating Messiah's supper is a way to translate intangible faith into act. Isn't that what Messiah's Supper means for us? During this Hasidic Messiah's Supper, the Haftorah portion of Scripture read for the last day of Passover today, Isaiah 10, 32 through 12, 6, gives the day a strong messianic association, my friends. This is an incredible day in Scriptures. The reading is replete with prophecies that reveal the Messiah and the messianic age. For example, a scheduled reading for today contains famous prophecies like a shoot will come forth from the stump of Jesse, a branch will sprout from its roots, Isaiah 11.1, 1, and a wolf will live with a sheep, 11.6, and he will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel, 11.12. These are the readings happening in synagogue all throughout the world today. These prophecies fuel the messianic expectation for the final day of Passover. And the Hasidim believe that Adonai grants revelations about Messiah on the last day of unleavened bread. The Messiah's Supper is supposed to be, my friends, a rehearsal and a foretaste of the great messianic banquet in the future. Let's pray right now that these Hasidic rabbis have a revelation of Yeshua at the supper. And they're doing it right now. Now, the seventh day, this final day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread today is called Acharon Shel Pesach, 
which means the last day of Passover. And for the first, like the first day, you remember like the first day, we began last Saturday night, the last day is also a, very, is a high Sabbath. We find this in Exodus 12, the instructions in verse 16. It says, the first day is to be a holy assembly for you as well as the seventh day. No manner of work is to be done on these days except what is to be eaten by every person. That alone may be prepared by you. And so Jewish tradition tells us that on this last day, that this day is the anniversary of the crossing of the Red Sea. The reading in synagogues today for the seventh day contains the story of the crossing at the sea and the song at the sea. And although the entire whole festival of Passover, including these days of unleavened bread, is known as the season of our freedom, we did not as a people obtain final freedom until the last day. When Governor Newsom gets recalled on that last day, we will get freedom. When Adonai revealed his mighty power, splits the sea, rescues his people, drowns the Egyptians. The Jewish sages tell us that the common Israelite maidservant saw at the splitting of the sea what Isaiah and Ezekiel and all the prophets never saw. It reminds us of those words of Mashiach when he said to his disciples, but blessed are your eyes because you see. John, blessed are your eyes because you were going to see. And your ears because they hear. Amen I, tell, amen, I tell you, many a prophet and sodic longed to see what you are seeing and did not see and to hear what you are hearing and did not hear. And just as the escape from Egypt that we looked at Saturday night was not complete until today, until the crossing of the Red Sea, the last day of Passover has been the spiritual goal for the entire festival. For as Yeshua followers, we, the crossing of the Red Sea is paralleled today by the joy of Yeshua's resurrection and the great hope of his second coming. I'm going to ask our ushers at this time to distribute the unleavened bread and the grape juice. This grape juice was not around in the days of creation. It was around since February 2021 at Sprouts. And mom, if you'd come up. During the feast of Passover and unleavened bread, it is appropriate for us to partake of Messiah's supper. Shulchan Adonai, the Lord's table. Some call it Messiah's Yizker, remembrance. The Christian world calls it communion. Communion is really just a synonym for fellowship and means a covenant community gathering to celebrate the sacrifice of Messiah and the inauguration of the new covenant. As a Messianic Jewish congregation, we know this was a ceremony that was never to be stripped of its Passover attributes and its context, which it was. Very early on, it was stripped of its Passover context. As early as Emperor Hadrian in 117 CE, who hated our people. And in the ceremony related, as we were at the Seder Saturday night here, and we had this afikoman ceremony. We discussed it was broken, the afikoman. It was as Yeshua was also. It was hidden away, remember that? As if by death. But the afikoman was brought back, paralleling Yeshua returning back to life, allowing us to share in the goodness of the world to come. A life never again to be separated. Rabbi Saul says this the cup of blessing over which we make the blessing. Isn't it a sharing and bloody sacrificial death of the Messiah? The bread which we break, is it not a sharing in the body of the Messiah? 
Again, the word sharing that he used is the Greek koinonia, which means participation in or participation with. And it says to us in some miraculous way, when we drink the cup, when we eat the unleavened bread, we are participating in or with the shed blood and broken body of the Messiah on that of sack. Rabbi Saul also said this, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the death of the Lord. That is all. When we partake of this cup and this unleavened bread, what are we doing? We're telling the world, world, Yeshua is coming back again. And as we remember this new covenant in this way, it's a powerful way to call us back as a mishbucha, as a community, as a family, together as we proclaim the core message of the good news and experience the Messiah's in as, as his presence. Now, it goes without saying from the Word of God, we're encouraged before eating to examine our consciences, recall the con- My heart cries out that the Christian community recalls the context. It was the eve of Passover. The Messiah knew, yeah, he knew he was going to be betrayed. He would soon lay down his life for us. And the scriptures record his distribution of the unleavened bread to the disciples at his Seder table. He made the blessing and he said this. He said, this is my body, which is being given for you. Do this in memory. And when he said, this is my body, it made sense right then to the disciples. Almost a year earlier, as Passover was probably arriving, he said seemingly hard and similar and hard words, using words, he said, he said, I is life. But the bread that comes down from heaven is such that a person may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that has come down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. Furthermore, the bread that I will give is, and I will give it for the life of the world. My friends, that illustration, preview, a confirmation, the plan and purpose of Adonai to present a sacrifice that would redeem all people to himself. And he said it possible. Please join me in a blessing over the unleavened bread, the matzah. Blessed are you, Lord our God, ruler of the brings grain. And likewise, Yeshua took a cup of, and he made the bracha, made the blessing, and he gave it to his Talmudim, and he said, all of you, for this is my blood, which ratify the covenant. My blood shed on behalf may have this associate sacrificial death, redemptive, and a blessing. Boruch Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, Borei Blessed are you, Lord our God. Fourth, if you would stand with me in prayers. Alvinu, Alkenu, our Father and our King, we do thank you. As we again today remember your Son, you became our Passover. You told us, Lord, to remember your body broken for us. Thank you. Thank you for the life you gave. You love us so much. Lord, we recalled today that your son was wrapped, was buried, and a ransom price was paid, but then he rose from the dead. <laughs> Blessed be your holy name. And as we today, Lord, as a mishbucha, have shared this blessing and this cup, this bread, we thank you, shalom, and your everlasting zoe, life you gave to us. We hereby rejoin ourselves to our master, Yeshua the Messiah, the righteous one who is our bread of life and the true light and the source of eternal salvation. Salvation to all who would hear him today. Like a branch that remains in a vine, O oh God, we remain as well in you, just as you remain in the Father and the Father in him, in order that they might remain in us. May the grace of our Master, Yeshua the Messiah, the love of you, our Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, Ruach HaKodesh, abound to us today. And let us say, Amen. The Amen. 
As we close with the final song today, I trust that this has given you a broader perspective of what your friends, your neighbors, maybe some of your family will be doing tomorrow. We throw it back into its context, which it was stripped of, unfortunately. The calendar was very interesting this year, right? All of this took place this past week. Now it's taking place. So it should cause people to ask questions regarding lunar calendar, solar, the days of these things. Let me tell you something, my friends. Here's the bone-shattering truth. You cannot get three days and three nights from a Friday crucifix to a Sunday morning. There's not three nights to stay there. Hello. That's a mic dropper right there for the entire Christian world worldwide. Can't happen. Can't happen. Cannot happen. We count anyway up to the day of Shavuot. Bless these people today with your word. The ironic blessing where you told Moses to tell Aaron how to bless the sons and daughters of Israel. And so, Lord, we bless in the same way. It's your blessing today. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May Adonai lift up his countenance and grant you in the name of the principal and all of us who are with him said. Amen. Amen. Chag Pesach Sameach. Shabbat Shalom. We'll see you back next Shabbat commemorating Yom HaShoah. Chat with your neighbor. We'll be outside for Kiddush. Shalom Aleichem. Thanks for joining us this week. Make sure to visit our website, treeoflifeca.org, and be sure to subscribe to the show in iTunes, Google, Spotify, or via RSS so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you've found value in this show, we'd appreciate a ratings on iTunes or simply tell a friend about the show. That would help us out too. If you like this show, you might want to check out our Facebook page, Tree of Life Messianic Jewish Congregation, to see more content, including our weekly live stream. Be sure to tune in for our next episode as we continue to explore our Jewish roots through scripture.